well, it went from a sort of echoey sound to a more intimate sound. Well, hello there. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by talking about how it's all David's fault we haven't been doing a podcast for a while because he's been busy. From Coming from Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Charles Bovinger, with me on the line from somewhere is my co-host David Wheel. David, how's it going? I'm uh, doing doing wonderfully well, Charles. Uh, I my somewhere is Arctic, New Jersey. Uh, <clears throat> I you know, do apologize for all the traveling I've been doing uh, that made it impossible to to respond to the call. Uh, but I just arrived back uh, last night after an epic journey um, from Turkey and am enjoying the. I mean, there's this really pristine sort of feel mm-hmm. to the snow when it's so cold. So not not so much enjoying the cold, but um, but loving the the you snowy. You like your inside looking at the snow. Yeah, exactly. Right. I also like going out into the snow, mm-hmm. um, but you know, that's a yeah. I I recognize my uh, privilege as a person who generates a fair amount of body heat is able to walk, you know. Absolutely. Uh, yes, I mean, I, having grown up in New Hampshire, I absolutely adored trudging through the snow for yeah. all of my life until I was in a wheelchair, and now it's just the most miserable thing in the world, which yeah. is, you know, one of those ironic, hellish punishment, punishments. But, um, but I mean, it always used to be my dream that I'd go, and not necessarily retire, but what I always wanted to do was to just go up and live in, like, a cabin in the woods in Alaska. That was always my dream as a little kid, to just be alone in the wilderness and the quiet and the stillness and the cold. Yeah. Man, do I have the YouTube channel for you? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, no, I am actually serious. Um, All right, what what is it called? So there's this guy, this Canadian uh, guy who's building a log cabin in the woods, and... um, you know, I, I'd gotten into, uh, I was sort of curious about like, it's hey, all this stuff of like how to tie knots and, you know, all this random stuff that YouTube is uh, useful for and that is very closely tied to the topic of our podcast today. <laughs> By which I mean, obviously, this is, a, this is an incredible tangent that has nothing to do with anything, but I'll try to get through it quickly. This anyway, is about the um, personal character and grit that is necessary to make hard choices in a difficult environment. This is actually that, you know, Charles... I should have known by now, but there are no tangents. <laughs> there are no tangents. Anyway, anyway, this um, this Canadian guy who is just, uh, he's very calm, he's quiet, he, and he has this channel called uh, My Self-Reliance, that's the name of the channel, so it's, you know, self-reliance, and then it's like his version of living through the sort of Walden Pond um, type uh, uh, philosophy. And, um, you know, he's a really interesting guy. He got a working class background, um, uh, built a bunch of companies, lost many of them, talks about what it means to be an employer dealing with uneducated, you know, questionably motivated, uh, employees, um, trying to be good to them, getting screwed by them, mm. but not taking it in a kind of Ayn Rand, you know, super American capitalist direction, but just sort of like, you know, in a wise and patient way, just saying, this is how the world is. And 
you know, these are the choices I made. It's what I wanted to do. Those are the risks I exposed myself to, but you know, I'm not blaming them. It's just, these are the challenges we deal with as human beings in a, in a difficult world. And, um, so for a combination of reasons, he decided to build this, uh, cabin in the woods and, you know, through the process of doing it, um, you know, he's doing it to like build a channel on YouTube. And, uh, so it was a, you could see him kind of marketing himself through the, through the earlier videos and try, trying to come up with, uh, his brand essentially. And then it kind of all fell together and he started getting a bunch of followers. And I think I, I think I followed him when he had like 30,000 and now it, I think it's up to over 200, wow. uh, And one of the, so one of the things that I loved about it is the way that he interacts with the comments where he is incredibly encouraging about this community that's being built and that encouraged him to share some of the details of his personal story because he was, was so touched by and you know, this like Canadian mountain man, you know, is building the cabin and, you know, shooting deer and grilling the meat. And it's just very, very manly, very manly, you know, but then he's talking about how, like, how, like, I was really touched by these stories that you're sharing with me. And it, it's just an honor and a privilege to be entrusted with your life stories. And it's making me more, um, you know, I, I guess that it's, it's helpful for you, for me to share my story too. It's just, so it's this like, he's like Mr. Rogers. He's like Canadian, Mr. Rogers inviting us up to the cabin on the weekends. And, um, one of the comments, if I recall correctly, was someone who actually said, um, you know, I am, uh, in a wheelchair and I, get to live through you. And I, I thank you so much for, for doing these things. Um, I, you know, I love the woods, but I can't get out there anymore. And, uh, you know, I get to see that through your videos and it's really wonderful. And so it's like as, as terrible as the internet is, uh, in so many ways. And, you know, this current moment that we're in now of being, becoming hypersensitive to the trolls and, you know, the misogyny, the political misdirection, all the stuff uh, that we've become more sensitive to for very good reasons as, or, you know, sort of the, the spirit of 2016, but continues to live with us. Um, there are nevertheless, these other still very positive, uh, you know, ways in which communities can form and the good parts of human nature can also express themselves uh, through these medium, through these media. Anyway, so my self-reliance, uh, I encourage you to, to check it, the videos out. I mean, that's yeah. so it's not, you know, depending on the type of chair you're in, sometimes you can go out into the woods. And that's sure. how back in 2007, I ended up all alone by myself, stuck in a bunch of mud that had been a dirt road in Alaska right next to a sign that said danger bears. <laughs> Suffice to say, I survived and I got a couple of really good pictures of a glacier out of it. But, you know, we don't we, these are the risks that I chose to take. Right. So right. I won't blame anyone else for them. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that is one of the elements of social media that, you know, at the beginning was what we emphasized this ability to bring people together and share our stories like that. But which these days, when we talk about social media, we think about time wasting and trolls and, yeah. you know, all of this guerrilla marketing and fake accounts and Russians. And, you know, we, we, we do tend to lose sight of the good things it can do because of the toxic people. Um, a good example of that that happened just last week was um, Harry Enton from 538, mm. who uh, he's whiz kid. Harry Enton is how they usually introduce him. Um, he is 
a really big Bills fan, Buffalo Bills, mm. and they have not been to the playoffs in – they had the longest drought in American professional sports of not going to the playoffs, even longer than the Cleveland Browns, who, by the way, just had their 0-16 parade yesterday. Some people <laughs> think having an 0-16 perfect season parade is, is adding insult to injury, but I want to point out that it is actually a gesture of defiance aimed at all the people who say, oh, is this really better than not having a team at all? Because this is better than not having a team, and we want them to know that we're going to show up anyway because we're real fans, not those people who get mad because we lose you know, in the playoffs one year or don't make it far enough. We're there regardless. In, the, in this cold, in this snow, thousands of people showed up to show that they are Cleveland Browns fans. Anyway, Harry Enton is a big Buffalo Bills fan, and they have not made it to the playoffs in a very long time. And I was following his Twitter feed um, yes, uh, last Sunday when a bunch of things had to go right for the Bills to make the playoffs. They had to win, and then they needed either the Ravens to lose or they needed both the Chargers and the Titans to lose. The mm. Bills won pretty soundly. The Chargers and Titans both crushed their opponents, meaning it all came down to whether the the Baltimore Ravens would lose in Baltimore to the Cincinnati Bengals, um, where it was 24 to 10 at the half or something like that in favor of Cincinnati. And then Cincinnati scored like zero points in the second half. Baltimore took the lead. Baltimore is up by, I know, it was three or four points. Uh, Cincinnati is stuck at the 50 yard line. And then all of a sudden, Andy Dalton, who's had a terrible season, threw this brilliant 50 yard touchdown pass. And there are Bills react photos, uh, f- videos of Bills fans in bars reacting to this catch. Which, bear in mind, neither of these two teams is the Bills. These are both, <laughs> right. you know, these are the Bengals and the Ravens. And you know, the joke mean that Andy Dalton could run for mayor of Buffalo in 2015 <laughs> yeah. now. But, um, but anyway, you watch how happy these people are and how much they're cheering. And I was following Harry Enton's Twitter feed during this. And how happy he was when this happened at the last minute because he'd already resigned himself to the failure. Right. And then this happened. And, you know, I was looking at it. I almost wanted to go into his feed and make a comment about how, like, you know, I don't really have a reason to care about the Bills, but I care about them a lot just because of your Twitter feed. Yeah. But it, when I clicked on it, I saw that dozens of people had already commented that. Yeah. Dozens of people had already said, it's amazing that Twitter has brought us to the point where I know nothing about football, but I am heavily emotionally invested because a political analyst that I follow on Twitter cares a lot about this game. And yeah, the ability to share mass emotions that way yeah. is really fascinating. I mean, you can also yeah. see immediately, even by just saying that, how it can be used for evil purposes, and it right. frequently is. But that is the power of social media when done correctly. Well, so what's interesting about that to me is that you have introduced through this story the concept of, like, true fandom, you know, being a thick and thin supporter of a sports team. And it's like, okay, so what, is, what, are, what can we glean from that? If we're talking about character and the, the interaction between personal character and public morality, public ethics, then... You know what? What seems salient to me in the idea of fan of being a fan is <clears throat> the kind of um, so individual resilience and individual commitment, then achieving a mass scale and 
being beneficial to a society where you don't throw away the broken things. You don't um, stop doing something because it's hard and doesn't give you any rewards. You stay faithful and you persevere. And eventually the payoff is the kind of emotional moment that comes when, you know, the Andy Dalton sinks the 50 yard touchdown. Um, and, uh, so that strikes me as something of a contrast to the cheap thrill of someone on Twitter who has no dog in the fight, who has no stake in the game, who didn't necessarily know any of these people's names, but because they, you know, maybe got anxious about Donald Trump, uh, in 2015, started following this guy on Twitter and, you know, end up just with no background, no context whatsoever, um, you know, getting this endorphin rush delivered by means of the social media, uh, machine. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a Luddite in this particular moment or, um, you know, or pass judgment on the Twitter follower, you know, getting that reaction, but it strikes, it strikes me as something that is actually deeply conflicted. Mm. A contrast in the heart of the thing that we are discussing. Yes. I mean, I was going to come at this from a different direction to bring it back to where we were going. But the point is, there are, to the extent that there are no tangents, there are no tangents that you can get back where we were going through so many different routes. Right. Because what I was about to discuss in the sense of being true fandom is, in a sense, what this podcast is trying to do is we're trying to be true. We're trying to be true fans of democracy, true <laughs> fans of democratic <laughs> principles. And, you know, if you, you the same principles that you should be applying to when you analyze the sports teams up and ups and downs are the ones that you apply to being an open democracy. And this part of the problem that we had in 2016, part of the problem that the world saw post financial crisis is that people had started to, they, they got into the lean times. You know, we'd been through a bunch of periods after the Cold War where, you know, we're basically the New England Patriots and we're just making the playoffs every year and we're right. just dominating everything and it looks great. And then 9-11 happens and suddenly it's like, okay, well now we've lost one of our star players and we're not performing as well as we used to be. And, and it's clearly a way some other teams have risen up that are challenging us in our division better than they used to be. And, and, and then you hit the financial crisis and it's sort of like, okay, now's the long playoff drought. Now's the time when we need people to not just abandon us at the first sign of trouble. We need people who, who stick it out. But here is an interesting distinction that I want to make immediately, which is, you talk about keeping the faith or being faithful to your team or having faith in your team. But I'm reminded of something I believe was Neil deGrasse Tyson said on a talk show once when somebody said, oh, so you have faith in whatever conclusion you're reaching. And he said, right. no, I have evidence. Right. And, you know, the point of this show is that we look back for thousands of years over human history and the evidence piles up in favor of an open liberal democracy. Right. And so we have evidence that leads us to suggest that, yes, there will be lean times. There will be playoff droughts. But this is still the best system. And trying to jump on the bandwagon for some illiberal democracy like they're trying to do in Hungary or some, some other authoritarian government like they're trying to do in Russia, 
that can give you that quick endorphin rush that you sometimes yeah. see with a few quick results. But it, it has a tendency historically to not go well for the people who are doing it. I mean, if one is right. or rushing, yeah. yeah, or, um, you know, Venezuela, uh, right. Venezuela style leftist um, uh, transformation of the system that some people may think that they want. Right. It, it, it made it, it showed there was a period where it looked like they were they were sort of a future up-and-coming style. They're going to be this dominant force in Latin America. They're going to be displacing a lot of American influence. Everything's going so well for them. And, you know, those of us who were, you know, reading news sources like The Economist that actually look at international affairs rather than just incredibly left-wing views that always want to say whatever a crazy left-wing person is doing must be a good idea. Right. We were seeing that this violated a lot of the fundamental principles that certainly we on this show would believe in. And all of those, Venezuela is almost an extreme example in how right it proved all of the open liberal democracy people yeah. to be. Because if you were, if we were to have said 10, 15 years ago, what's going to happen in Venezuela is the oil price is going to crash. It's going to be a disaster. There's going to be rationing of items. The government is going to basically just stop becoming a democracy because the people in power will refuse um, you know, to acknowledge the will of the people. They'll be fighting in the streets. All of these things that are happening in Venezuela now you would have said, oh, that's ridiculous. You're just some neoliberal shill who yeah. thinks that this is always the right thing to do. But then it happened in Venezuela. Right. Because they strayed away from the fundamental principles that are sound. And um, I don't want to, this is not a tangent because it is related to what we're doing, but it's a digression in the sense that um, I don't want to get us too far down this rabbit hole. But this is something that as somebody who plays, you know, a lot of, I do a lot of, of, um, gaming for things like magic the gathering where it's a card game that has um your performance can hit a drought just like it can for a for a for a football team for for any sort of sports team or even for a democracy and um on this one podcast limited resources they have people who uh, it was just hosted by a former poker player they talk about results oriented thinking which um a lot of people want to say well i'm results oriented i just care if we get where we're going mm. but then there's this process oriented view that says that results oriented thinking um falls apart under certain circumstances um if you're playing a game like poker or like magic where i mean to use a poker example because more of the five people in our audience will be likely to understand it um if you're playing texas hold'em and your hand is you know two aces and then the flop comes down and it's like I don't know, ace, ace, and a two. And then, you know, by the odds, you're extremely likely to win. And you might, I don't know, poker well enough to get into lots of specific weird examples, but you could end up playing this hand essentially perfectly in the sense that you're 99% to win. And you know, like, through the math of what the cards would have to be for you to lose, you're 99% to win. But then the turn and the river come down, and suddenly somebody else at the table has a straight flush. And there was really no reason to predict that. It was, you know, less than a 1% chance. Did you do something wrong by thinking that four aces wasn't going to win you that hand? I don't think so. Um, and, but if you're somebody who says, well, well, you should have folded because he got a straight flush. Well, you did, that wasn't information you had. Right. You know, that you got un, there are times that you get unlucky. And what the really good poker players know is that it's not about any one hand of poker. It's about the fact that if you maximize your expected value of each hand in the long run, it will do you better. And that's how it is with democracy. 
by following open liberal democratic principles, we are doing the highest expected value play and we might lose out on one or two hands where we just get unlucky. Donald Trump is a pretty good example. A system that produces <laughs> Donald Trump is a pretty big disaster from an expected value standpoint. But if but we don't want to suddenly move away from liberal democracy because we're afraid of getting another Donald Trump. That's right. not a high well, expected value play overall. Yeah, I think I mean so I think in general the the way you set up that um contrast between you know being results oriented and being process oriented what, that makes that makes sense and it's a useful distinction particularly because there is such a um sort of default support for being results oriented right. kind of a person and it's very very it sounds very american right. and it actually sounds very kind of american neoliberal American, classic American values. Like, I don't, I don't care about the theories, you know, I'm just, I'm a results oriented type of person. Um, and that's a, there's not really much there, there, you know, we, you you actually have to be a process oriented person because, um, even if you say you're results oriented, then it's like, okay, so what is your proposal? What are you going to do? And my any proposal, proposal is that I, I put over the process. next card and I hope it's an ace. <laughs> you know, it's like that's <laughs> right. not a plan. Right. So, so right, exactly. And um, what I would say though about this question of kind of okay, how did we get Donald Trump, and what do we do, and how do we think about our system that created this moment that we're in, is um, you know that's where the poker analogy really does break down, as useful and good as it is, because in poker you can you you know that whatever's going to happen on this hand, if you play another hundred hands, then you'll, and you stick by the rules of your process that are mathematically proven, then, you know, it's more, it's, you're very likely to, to win more than you lose. Um, because the rules don't change, but in a, you know, in the society that we're in, we are rewriting the rules all the time you know we're not they don't they don't change that radically um but you know the rules that we're talking about are um a combination of so many different things uh that they're they're both it's the constitution which obviously doesn't change that often it's federal law it's state law it's um, and federal regulations, federal regulations, which change even and then more it's also often. Norms, yeah. uh, the you know how people react to things um, that that happen along the way that are not. It's just a it's just a reflection of aggregate individual decisions that aren't codified anywhere. You know, all of these things are changing constantly, and they're part of the system that you know this quote unquote system that created Donald Trump, and unfortunately you know, are not, um, maximizable in the, uh, way that, the, you know, the rules of poker are. And so the question is like, okay, these rules are constantly changing. Which of them can we change deliberately and how in order to make a better system? And that's, and that's the, that's the reason that there's a debate It's like, okay, so let's, you know, let's all join the democratic socialists of America, or, you know, our local chapter to, you know, to change this part of the system. Let's, um, you know, let's all like, or, you know, or like David Brooks says, let's all go to church or, you know, synagogue every week to start building local communities to be more resilient. Um, you know, it's like, 
all the proposals to change the system have an effect at some level because the system has so many different uh, inputs, both codified and and not. You know, and then like you know, here I am sitting in New Jersey, and the choices taken to enfranchise ex felons in Virginia, right, or you know, to increase voter suppression in Wisconsin uh, are totally outside of my power and right. yet have incredible effects on national politics. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, I have to quickly add that um, we were, as we were discussing Twitter and its things and Venezuela, um, my, in the background, we were talking about that. I had Susan Hennessy from Lawfare blogs, um, mm. Uh, the Twitter feed was the one that I had open as an example that I was discussing prior to the show recording. And I just want to note that as we were having this discussion, it just updated to include her retweeting somebody saying, I recommend posting about Venezuela if you enjoy Western teenagers explaining capital real socialism to you. <laughs> right. Or so, Western 30-somethings. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's... Um, I mean, that that just goes to show, I mean, again, with the extent to which there are no tangents, that we were talking about Twitter, and right now we immediately get a tweet um, that it was tweeted by a man named Tobias Schneider. I guess I should give him credit. Um, yeah. And she retweeted it, that, like, this all came back together so perfectly right there. Well, I was in the background, as you were making that comment, was looking at a different Susan, uh, Susan B. Anthony, on the $1 coin that I got from the New Jersey Transit uh, yesterday on my way back from the airport and talking about grit and faith, uh, you know, someone who, if I'm not mistaken, uh, died long before seeing the fruits of her labors in organizing the movement for, um, you know, women's role in society. Um, and whether or not, uh, I am right in my chronology, which I guess you are if I... correct. Okay. There we While go. While you were saying that in the background, I was looking up when she died. She did in fact die. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. So what does that mean to spend your life being reviled and beaten and jailed for a cause that you believe that, you know, is right. Um, and never see the fruition of right and you know that's what that's why she's on the coin and that's uh, what tells you that this is that i mean she if you look at it in that sense she's process oriented because she never got to see the result but exactly. she yeah she exactly. had evidence that what she was doing was the right thing to do and that this would eventually yield results and it did yield results just because it took longer than one lifetime to yield those results doesn't mean that she made a mistake yeah and so now i, I, I was asking this question uh, the other day is, you know, what is it about this moment that has led us to lose faith? So uh, there are a bunch of things that go into this moment where people are not getting any psychic benefit from thinking about the future being better than the present, either because they don't think the future will be better than the present for anybody um, you know, like if you're in a if you're a climate change catastrophist, then there's no reason to do anything because we're all totally screwed. And, um, a lot of what you're going to do is going to produce carbon out 
emissions. Right. So, like, well, that's you know, the thing. I mean, what people don't understand appropriately is that Donald Trump actually does believe in climate change, but he has looked at the numbers so closely that he is convinced we're all doomed. So he's just become a nihilist. <laughs> right. Well, um, no, you know, for or, people who there, don't pick up sarcasm, really that was people. sarcasm. Yeah, that was, that was sarcasm. I mean, there are some people though who, um, you know, who who look at climate change and believe that climate change is happening, and then are just like, oh, well, you know, it'll be better for us. Look at, you know, Russia's going to produce so much more wheat because they'll be able to plant in Siberia because it'll be warmer. You know, like there, there are people who convince themselves of of that fantasy. Uh, you know, like, oh, it'll be, yeah, of course it's changing. Of course things are, you know, of course it's changing. But, um, you know, there'll be more carbon in the atmosphere. Carbon's good for plants. It'll be warmer. You know, we can grow more food. Like, it'll be great. It'll be good. And, in some particular cases that may reflect some reality. Um, but obviously on the whole, the degree of instability, uh, you know, that is coming to climate and weather, um, is vastly negative. My understanding is that that is vastly negative for basically everywhere. Right. And then, um, you know, yeah. Okay. Like maybe Canada and Russia will produce more, uh, you know, ag- agricultural outputs, but what places are going to produce less? Exactly. Right, no, because that, of that's exactly what I was going to say. You, know, you, have, you have increasing desertification and um, uh, sort of unpredictable flooding and the acidification of the oceans that will affect right. fishing holes, right? And jellyfish so, populations. Yeah, <laughs> the jellyfish. Got to bring it back to the jellyfish. <laughs> anyway. You, there are no uh, tangents. It all comes oh, back man, to Nidarians. Uh, you have eviscerated the point I was going to make. Well, so th- either because you don't believe that the future is bright for anybody, um, for whatever reason. And, you know, I basically am a client. I mean, I'm, I basically am a climate change catastrophist. I mean, I think um, I think the, the question is just when it starts. You know, when... If it hasn't a, already. I mean, when you say it starts, like it's a long process. When it being the catastrophe. Right. So, for example, like... I'm trying to save for my retirement, right? And this is, right. this made it, um, pretty concrete for me is when I'm thinking about the compounding interest and all that stuff. Um, you know, how much money do I think I'm going to have at a certain time? It's like, well, you know, in 10 years, okay. That's one set in 20 years, but then I was like, okay, in 50 years, one, hopefully I'll still be alive. Maybe I'll still be alive, but in 50 years, I mean, the climate will be, I, I suspect the, that is when catastrophe starts to actually be worth calculating into this question mm-hmm. um, of like, which, you know, where do I want to live? Where do I want to? Suddenly my cabin in the Arctic doesn't look property. so foolish. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There won't be any snow on your, uh, on your mountain trails. Right. Well, you so, know, supposedly. But by then you'll have a Boston, Boston dynamics, you know, robot dog to, right around oh it would be a robot cat don't be (laughs) don't don't do that um well supposedly the great lakes region i.e especially northeastern ohio is supposed to be one of the places that actually does benefit from climate change and you know i have a lot of friends including my sister who have just recently well i don't know if my sister's a friend but she's a family member (laughs) (laughs) Um, she doesn't listen to this podcast i can say whatever i want um (laughs) 
who just moved back to the Cleveland area, you know, they've been living in places like San Diego and New York City where the, you know, the rents are just insane right. and the prices are off the wall. And they have to drive them, you know, if they're in, say, San Diego, they have to have a very long commute wherever they're going. If they're in New York City, they have to put up with New York City. They're moving back to Cleveland, and I was like, oh, wow, look how cheap all of these places are. And, you know, there are people who are starting to realize now, well, you know, this isn't such a bad place to be. The reason that I'm not still in northeastern Ohio has more to do with the fact that all of the people that I care about are on the East Coast and the places that I care about are on the East Coast. It's just too far from the places I want to be, but as its own place, Cleveland's a great place to be. And, yeah. you know, people should be sort of flooding into the Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan regions if they're anticipating climate change. You've got a lot, you're next right. to one of the, some of the largest freshwater bodies in the world. Right. Right. Um, no, that's, that's really interesting. And also gets to the, you know, the super fandom and resilience and grit and commitment to fixing broken things um aspect of of this discussion that we're having which is that um if you are committed i mean you know your sister i don't know what the calculations were that led them to move back there but presumably the fact that you know you have family there and memories there and now all of my family except me is right there in in the cleveland area (laughs) so Nobody really cares about me, though, so it's okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they. I'm sure they don't. Um, well, now I'm the special. I'm the just so everybody knows. I'm the middle child, so this means that with me as the one kid who's not close by, I can get special attention when I when I get home. Which you never got because you were the middle child. Well, I never got I until I was in a wheelchair, <laughs> and then I got a lot more. Man, the lengths that some people will go I to know. get to get attention, was... Charles. That was the the thing in the yearbook somebody had written was that um, uh, I had I had staged this as an elaborate ploy not to have to finish my record number of classes that I was taking that semester. Um, to which I was like, yeah, you say that, but I took seven APs in the hospital. <laughs> I yeah. did very well on six of them. They must have they must have known you quite well. To they did. I mean, the, the yearbook was that done, kind of a joke. Yeah. And, yeah. The yearbook was done pretty much entirely by close friends of mine. So yeah. That was that was always a good way to make sure pictures of me were in there at various places, <laughs> right? That's and funny. amusing captions. In fact, unfortunately, the yearbook from my year is is the only one that I believe is not on display in the headmaster's area, where like visiting students can look at all of these past yearbooks um, for a variety of reasons. Not the least of which is that one of my um, fellow classmates made his senior page a picture of him naked in the chapel. <laughs> While everyone else is, or they they photoshopped him naked in the chapel um, with a bunch of other everybody else there during morning meeting, and mm. that was apparently not appropriate. So I, my understanding is that this one is not I'm in. Shocked. It was shocked too late for them to stop it by the time uh, by the time you know, they saw it. But um, that's why our yearbook is a special limited edition one that everybody should get their hands on if possible to that's see funny. my brilliant senior page. Where, which consists entirely of a floppy disk labeled Charles's senior page and a note next to it that says, I didn't have time to print this out. Could somebody do it for me? And then them writing back, no. So, that's funny. anyway. Um, but yes, I mean, that's the, uh, the, you know, people moving. Well, we we really went in a direction away from just like Cleveland being a place you might want to live now. But You say we. I would say, I say something else. Yes, well... <laughs> 
The yeah. point of the matter is, yeah. while your wheelchair may not be successful in your Arctic cabin, it will be a very useful in Cleveland. On the flat shores. On of... the flat shores near Lake Erie. Yeah. Um, uh, Cleveland is, because of the, the, the spacing of things in Cleveland, it's actually not a bad place to be in a wheelchair. Mm. Um, I think D.C. is the favorite city that I've been in for wheelchair access generally. Cleveland might be number two. Um, it's not one of those just, oh, God, why am I here? Places like New York City for being mm. in a wheelchair. Mm. Or, God mm. help me, that th- those couple of days I spent in St. Petersburg, uh, Russia. Oh. No, yeah, not Florida. Um, Florida, right. But, uh, but anyway, <laughs> so these are some of the effects of climate change. We talked before about... You know, the guy who was putting his lottery winnings in Florida, places in the Florida Keys that were you were concerned were right. underwater. Right. And um, I mean, yeah, that's but that's not, you know, if you if you take away climate change as an issue, what he was doing wasn't an absurd thing to do. Right. And well, I mean, you know, also when you have. Well, I mean, that guy won like. Part of what was tragic was that guy won just enough money oh. that he had a lot to play with, but I think not enough that you could diversify to the Florida right. Keys and just you know if right. you win the if you win a hundred million dollars, yeah, buy a couple houses in the Florida Keys. It doesn't matter. Right, you've got so much money, you can you can you know slosh it around and 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 risk doing something like that. But I think it was like he won you know a few hundred thousand bucks and was like. Okay, property in the Florida Keys is the way to invest this, you know, which is just like, no, oh god, awful. You know, still property in Cleveland. Yeah, but like, you know, it's amazing that we've been having this podcast for this long and not talked about Bitcoin. Uh, Well, I mean, you know, but if we're talking about catastrophe, right? Like, one of the things that the my understanding is one of the things that the Bitcoin enthusiasts talk about is this decentralized blockchain as a way to ensure that the Bitcoin will maintain its value, you know, into the post-apocalyptic future. And, you know, the sort of laughing response that many people have to this is like, oh, you really think that, you know, after the nuclear war with North Korea or climate catastrophe and mass, you know, hundreds of millions of climate refugees all across the world, like you really think that you know the system that exists to authenticate uh, your Bitcoin is gonna is gonna you know be preserved. And I gotta say, I'm actually on the side of the Bitcoin people on that. Like, I don't know if bit, if Bitcoin's particular, you know, if the blockchain itself is gonna be the system that works. But these kind of uh, you know high intensity systems of global interconnectivity, I think, will managed to preserve a lot of wealth and power even through these catastrophes, which is kind of tragic and sad because at, well, at the one level, you you know, I really would love to see, you know, the Donald Trumps of the world be served a steaming pile, you know, by fate, right? And just have... His name is Don Jr. <laughs> His name is Don Jr. And that he... seems like a... And he didn't actually get anything from the Russians in the meeting, even though he tried to. So go away. Right. But, you know, but so this, this, uh, the wiping the clay slain, right? Oh, oh my God. Did I just say that? Wiping, wiping the, the slate, slate clean. clean. Excuse yeah. me. Um, wiping the slate clean has a certain appeal, even though I am very much not 
or I, I tell myself I'm not a Jacobin, uh, but I guess there's that that part of us. I mean, know, I that part of them inside me. Well, as well, that's I mean, that's when you. Go I, into but economics. the point is, I would like that, but I don't think it's real, right? Like because uh, you know the revolutions come and go, and nevertheless, hierarchy and power and wealth um, sustain themselves and they transform maybe, but they don't go away. Right. And so we just have to acknowledge that this is going to be real. And so this guy who's like, Oh, I got to diversify. I got to buy something concrete, you know, buy real estate. He probably, if he just bought, you know, mutual funds probably would have still been the best way to save that money because whatever's going to happen to the U S you know, probably the stock market will just figure out a way to, to adapt because as as corrupt and prone to you know catastrophic mistakes as it is, um, this is it gets back to what we're talking about. Like the two of us are just we are neoliberal shills, uh, and you know the stock market as a market is a form of interaction that has been proven pretty well to succeed in, in adapting to, to challenge, you know, any, there are many particular failings, um, that, you know, that the, that the rules that govern the market have exposed, of, uh, or, you know, the, many particular failings that have exposed flaws in the rules and regulations that govern that market. Um, but, you know, I, I'm still, you know, you go back, if you buy, if you bought in at the hot, at the, at the utter peak of the great depression, you know, if you, had, if you didn't sell anything, then, uh, you know, within, I can't remember exactly how many years, but certainly no more than 10, you'd have been making money again. Right? I don't even, I think it was like five. You know, I, you, I'm not, I, economic history isn't something I've studied enough to have a good answer for that. Um, yeah. But is I mean, obviously part of it is like, it's like, okay, if you bought stock in a company that right. just no longer existed because it went bankrupt, then that's right. a different story but if you you know you're talking sort of if you bought um an index if you're talking about the index right. uh dow jones you know then um those types of crises they come and they go and so and i think that's because uh democracy like a well-functioning market is responding to the way that humans interact with each other in a fundamental natural way and those rules can be made better um but they can't be replaced by some kind of utopic vision of the pure truth that we must all as citizens move towards in some kind of fiat way. Uh, that's just not the way humans are. So I have a couple of, of notes for that. First, I don't think I've ever heard the phrase utopic before, um, as opposed to utopian. Um, utopian. That just amuses me because I like to picture like the subtropics. You have these sub-utopics. <laughs> Um, which is, is, is the best we can hope for in the real world is to be sub-utopic. But That's um, well, I had a, I mean, I have a, there's a number of things uh, to sort of that I would, was going to add in there. One is that we actually were going to get to Bitcoin very naturally because um, my remark that I was about to make before that was that my retirement is incredibly diversified in my hoping my Black Lotus gains as much value over the next 20 <laughs> years as it did over the last 20 years. Um, which I actually did the math on. If it does grow in its value enough, it actually would be a sizable portion of my retirement savings. Um, yeah. It won't, but if it did. 
and then that was going to lead us into Bitcoin because Mount Gox, um, right. the Bitcoin thing that was destroyed, was originally Magic the Gathering online exchange where people were trading cards. Then it became Bitcoin. And I, I mean, I have to say that I am very much anti-Bitcoin, um, which is it's, it's an interesting position to try to explain because, um, you know, if you had bought Bitcoin like 10 years ago or whenever it started. When the Nazis were buying it. Right. I mean, well, so if you if you bought it way back when, it would be worth a lot right now. And so you're trying to explain to people that Bitcoin is a bad investment or it's not whatever because we're in a bubble. Well, you, you run into the problem that you always run into in a bubble, which is results-oriented thinking, which is that somebody says, well, if I bought it, you know, you told you convinced me not to buy it last year and now it's gone up X amount. So I would have made X amount of money. So, well, we don't know where in the bubble we are, but it is a bubble is essentially the argument right. be made there. And I don't I mean, I I've read <clears throat> descriptions of how blockchain technology works. I have a very vague idea of what's going on, um, but it is far from perfect. Right, well, but this my is understanding, the, my understanding the, the, of it is not a very positive one of of Bitcoin's existence, not because. I mean, I think it was Paul Krugman who said that the one of the issues with Bitcoin is a bunch of people, very clever people, solved a technical problem. And they assumed that because it was a hard technical problem, it must have solved a political problem. Right. But really, Bitcoin doesn't answer any of the questions that banking doesn't already do. One of the examples that a different author gave, whose name escapes me at the moment, it was something like, shockingly, a lot of people have decided that they don't want to give up their um, their you know their their credit card points in exchange for not having you know the ability to contest purchases. Um, you know, we, we, basically, it's if you if you look at what Bitcoin is being used for, and you look at all of the existing alternatives, existing alternatives appear better in basically every yeah. way. Um, right. And that you know, um, what Bitcoin sort of wants to do is to recreate cash online, and. I don't know. It still seems, and but but like cash, that means you don't necessarily get to dispute purchases. You don't get to get your money back. People can steal it. There have been a lot of these Bitcoin hack. It's supposed to be so super safe and everything, and yet we've had at least two major hacking incidents that have massively hit the value of Bitcoin. I don't know where the value is going yeah. to end. If you look up what um, the amount of energy production that is used both in doing Bitcoin transactions and how long it takes and in mining Bitcoin, it's Honestly, it's 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 actually rather frightening. So yeah, no, I. I but of I, course, Bitcoin I, is. I am delighted to to see you, you know, charging it about this, this, yeah. this angry screed that yeah. has come from my flashing the the red flag. Of How dare you! And then I was going to get into, um, you know, the the idea of well, let's just set it all back to zero on, um, you know, like, like, like the of the possible benefits of the system, you know, being reset essentially. Which is kind of interesting because isn't there something in the Bible about a 50-year jubilee where you're supposed to reset <laughs> all of the wealth, something like that? Yeah, I think we might have actually talked about that before. And yeah. I think it but, is, uh, and as yeah. from a matter of economic theory, as they teach in economic classes, it actually could lead to better outcomes if you could do that exactly once. But if, you, if there's a fear <laughs> that you'll keep doing it, then that has incentive problems. I, right. as an individual, am very much against trying too hard to... Um, completely tear down any system that exists or um, stuff like that, because basically throughout history, whenever you look at a at a revolution that results in saying, OK, this is year zero, that always leads to horrible, horrible things. You know, you'll see so that in Cambodia. You'll see that the French Revolution shockingly ended up with people being beheaded. Yeah, um, because we believe in I institutions. Mean, so as neoliberal shills. Yeah, I mean the Islamic Year Zero wasn't so bad, you know. 
classical Islamic civilization is pretty. That's pretty true. I mean, no, that's that. So Islamic year zero is that sixteen? Is that is that six twenty two or six six thirty two? Um, six twenty two. Six twenty two. Okay. I, I should. I, I, that's one of the, the sort of it's, it's shocking, shocking admissions that I don't have mm-hmm. an immediate yes answer to that, but I believe that is that that is true. Yeah, but I I, I just. You know, modernist. So but you had to go back fourteen hundred years to find an example of saying year zero isn't a disaster. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. Well, but and part of that though is that it only became a year zero essentially through kind of back. Did, did they call casting, it year zero right? at like, the time? No, but I, my point is that the the process that led to that particular year zero becoming acknowledged and respected by anyone was a very long process of people converting and people saying like, yeah, I prefer this or obviously. I think retrospective year zeros are perfectly acceptable. But when people say like the regime in power says, this is year zero. Exactly. This is the start of of new things. Much as like setting, right. Setting one, one AD back to the birth of Christ. That wasn't the thing they immediately did at the time either. Exactly. Exactly. It's something that like the, a system that arose from a very complicated process that right. millions of people, um, you know, bought into at some level, millions of people bought into because they were converting. And then at some level, um, you know, obviously you have a huge amount of coercion and force, uh, from these empires that are empires and kingdoms that are converting people by force and like, Oh, you have a, you have a, you have a choice. You can be baptized or we'll just kill all of you, you know? as has happened in various parts of Europe. Um, with that caveat aside, the, uh, you know, there were sort of organic processes that were going on with those year zeros in a way that the, you know, the year zero of the French Revolution, which is basically the touchstone for what we're actually talking about, um, you know, for all of its u- utopic, I'll just, just you know, flaunt that in your face. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, very commendable ideals, um, nevertheless, uh, coincided with some, uh, with some real problems. Yes. That's, that is a nice way to put the reign of terror. I'll just, yeah, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just, I'll just, uh, euphemize it. That, in yeah. that way. Um, well, we, we went very far afield of what our initial plan topic was today, which is yeah. actually great because I have decided just now that the topic and title of this episode is going to be, there are no tangents. This is this. I, I view this entire episode as a series of tangents that all connected back to the same themes we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole point of what we're doing here is, again, you know, because I mean, we are this is this we are working through being basically classical liberals in this crazy illiberal moment in yes. world history. And um, I mean, you know, when I say crazy, crazy, because the entire system that we are in is a system created by the classical liberals of the 20th century still. Um, but it is assailed by, you know, these, you know, all the accelerating forces are illiberal forces, it seems. Right. Um, and so here we are, uh, in a sense, standing athwart history right. saying, stop, uh, in a sense, saying, you know, standing on this neoliberal train, uh, which is still moving forward and saying, no, this needs to keep going because this is the best that humanity has ever had. Right. Um, and just working through all these issues. And so it's, you know, as, as liberals, uh, 
the, as classical liberals, the atomic unit is the individual. Uh, but the object of discussion is the, is the society composed of all those individuals. And so, you know, individual character, individual morality, um, are, in, are significant insofar as, you know, they deal with the common good, the public that we, of which we are the true fans. Which we are the true fans. We, we are willing to accept that while democracy is having a bad season, we're going to come back. We have faith in the fundamentals of our game plan. We have evidence in the fundamentals of our game plan. Um, we believe we've got. A, we, we believe what we're doing is fundamentally sound. And even if the ball bounces the wrong way, one or two games, you know, sometimes you're up twenty-eight to three, and you end up losing in some highly improbable way. I mean, there are. It's yeah. There are a lot of great sports-related analogies to how to how things sort of unraveled unexpectedly and somewhat horrifically for the rest of us in Hillary Clinton's campaign. But, you know, when when you say she has a 70% chance to win as 538 was doing, not this 99% nonsense of some of the other people, you have yeah. to accept that the other 30% of the time comes up. Yeah. And it was particularly disastrous that um, that 30% happened to come up when Donald Trump was the candidate. Right. Um, but we are, we are fans of liberal democracy, and we're going to stick with them through a playoff drought – we will be there when it is time for them to shine again, and we will help to build whatever new foundations are necessary. And with that, yeah, yeah America. <laughs> and with that, we will sign off. All right. One quick little point I'm going to make at the end here this week. I was going to visit this uh, this in very enjoyable uh, outdoor light exhibit in Georgetown over oh. New Year's. And the Georgetown area is very uphill. Very, very yeah, yeah. uphill. Very, yeah. very steep. And it was quite icy. Every hill only goes up. Oh, yes. And yeah. so this was one of the uh, few situations where I allowed one of my friends to push me up the hill, mm. which is something I normally don't do for a number of reasons. Um, it's not so much you know, people say, oh, you're too proud to be pushed or whatever. It really has more to do with the fact that people who are pushing you aren't looking at the ground carefully enough. So they'll mm. hit a cobblestone or something and your chair might tip over and you might fall out, which has happened to me mm. with people pushing me. Mm -hmm. Then again, that very night later, I happened to do that on my own without anybody pushing <laughs> me. But the point is, um, you know, I, and particularly with a good with a good friend who where I ask him, hey, could you push me for this part? You know, that's not too bad. But I want to let everybody know that um, when I got this chair – um, when you get your chairs designed for your like permanent chair, um, you know they'll say make sure you don't get handles on it because if you put handles on it, people will assume they can just grab the handles mm. and and move you whenever they want without asking. Mm. And I have found that that is true even when you don't have handles. When we were at this Georgetown ex uh, exhibit, I got to point to the the infamous street where some four years ago. Um, I was hiking up. Oh, it was so steep uphill, but I'm gonna make it all in the dark by myself, and all of a sudden somebody jumps out and starts pushing me that I didn't even know was there because they wanted to be helpful. They wanted to be helpful, but I freaked out at him because that was not an okay thing to do. Oh, my God. And it turned out he was not from America, and he felt really bad, and I gave him a hug, and it was okay. But, but you know, please, people, don't assume that you can just shove somebody in a wheelchair because wheelchairs can be shoved. Uh, much right. in the same way that right. if you see somebody struggling through the snow, you don't just run up and grab them and pick them up and carry them over the snow right. without asking. It's or, not an okay thing to do. Yeah, or if you see, you know, a woman on a bar, you know, a street full of bars wearing a particular, particularly alluring 
you know, choice of clothes, it, it doesn't mean that she is sending you any right. particular signal. Well, being because... an unattractive person in high school, that was a useful, that was a lesson I learned very quickly, is that just because somebody's <laughs> looking for someone doesn't mean they're looking for you. <laughs> um, although I do consider my wheelchair quite alluring. That's why I got it in all black, so I can use it after Labor Day. <laughs> anyway, with that, we will be signing off. See you next week.